All right. Well, I've had the opportunity to have conversations with several of you about uh, the Apostles' Creed. I appreciate all the feedback, and, and I, I love the questions that come in, and, and just kind of getting to talk through uh, what, what the Scriptures teach us about these things. And, and if you remember, what we said from the very beginning is the Apostles' Creed is not Scripture. It is a summary of what Christians believe. And if there's any truth to be had or found, it is found in the Word of God, and that's what we turn to for these things. And today we're going to get to probably the most uh, contested or the most uh, difference of opinion of any statement within the the Apostles' Creed. And it is the the line we talked about last week was crucified, dead, and buried. We're going to talk about him being buried today briefly. But then the next line is he descended into hell. And as I was researching um, in order to start this series, I was looking for, okay, let me just, first of all, find the Apostles' Creed and get the text down so that I know what I'm looking for. And I started to look, and I found that there were different Apostles' Creeds out there, which is hard to say. It sounds like I'm saying it wrong. But there were different versions of the Apostles' Creed in use. And so as I began to look into that and study about it, and I looked at, at you know, various denominations, and even within denominations, there are differences of opinion about which ones we should say. And this particular line, that he descended into hell, has been redone. It's like some people say he descended to the dead. Some people say he descended into Hades instead of saying the word hell. Some, some places just leave the line out completely. They don't even say this line at all. It just moves specifically from he was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again. I mean, they just bypass it all together. And I I thought it was interesting. And as I really started to dive in, I I was asking people that, you know, of, of my own background and my own belief, you know, what I grew up in. But I also asked people you know, I'm friends with the, the guy just across the street here at Grace Lutheran Church, and I asked him about what they believe about these things. Uh, other pastor friends of mine that pastor churches in town, and, and I got to have lots of very interesting conversations with people about this. And so today I'm going to try as best I can to lay out for you what I, where I'm at with all of this. Because I don't know that I could say this is adamantly exactly what this is all about. Um, I'm willing to admit that there's some mystery still in this for me, and, and I'm, I'm willing to be teachable on it. But let's start with the fact that where we left off the story last week was that Jesus died on the cross, and he was truly, truly dead. Those Roman centurions knew exactly what they were doing, and they knew beyond shadow of a doubt that Jesus was dead there on the cross. And we also saw that there was a, a rush, an urgency for Jesus to be dead because the council of the, the Jewish people, they wanted Jesus' body and all these bodies to be taken down before the, past, or excuse me, before the Sabbath day. It was a high Sabbath, it was an important day, and they wanted all of these bodies to be taken down. They didn't want that kind of grotesque thing to be up on this special day of rest. And so there was an urgency to have that done quickly. Now, we know that Jesus died. It was about the uh, sixth hour of the day or just after the sixth hour of the day. Excuse me, the ninth hour of the day. Sixth hour is noon. Ninth hour of the day is three in the afternoon. 
And sometime just after that, that's when Jesus gives up his spirit, the scriptures say, and dies. And so it says in John chapter 19, the scriptures say this. It says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. And so they took the body of Jesus, bound it in, the linen, in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So what we see here is that Jesus' body is taken from the cross and placed in the tomb by two secret disciples. Joseph of Arimathea was obviously someone who could go and ask Pilate for a favor. We know that he was some wealthy man because he had a, a tomb ready to go that he had access to. And so Joseph of Arimathea says, can I take the body and make sure that it gets laid in a safe place? They didn't want it to get discarded. They didn't want it to be just thrown on the, the rubbish heap. They wanted his body to be cared for in their customary way, but it was rushed. They had a very limited amount of time. It was the day of preparation. Sabbath started at sunset. And so they needed to get this done quickly. And so they found a tomb nearby, laid Jesus' body in it, wrapped him with the, the linen cloths and the spices, and laid him there in the tomb. Now, interesting here is on the next day. Matthew 27 tells us that on the next day, and this is probably early in the morning, it says the day after the preparation. So this is the Sabbath day. On the Sabbath day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away. And say to the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. So they, they knew that Jesus had made that prediction about his own life. That he would come back on the third day. And so... They were worried that someone might steal the body and then say that he rose from the dead. So they, they get permission from Pilate to use their guard to guard a tomb, which seems like such an interesting waste of resources. Go guard this dead body. But that's what they send them to do, and then Pilate gives them the authority to seal the tomb. This was probably just some wax that they pressed into that would signify this place is not to be open unless you have direct permission from whose seal this is. And they seal Jesus in the tomb. Now, what happens next? We're going to talk about next week, right? 
there's this in-between that we need to discuss today. And so that's where we're headed. This is Jesus buried. And now the next phrase that we come to is that he descended into hell. And so I want to share with you, first of all, the scriptures where this comes from. And I want to just lay it out before you and let you see it for what it is. And, and then we're going to start to dive into this. So the first passage is in 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, Peter's addressing a congregation of believers who are in a situation where they're receiving some persecution. They're being, you know, criticized. They're being harassed. They're being rejected by the culture around them. And he is, he is trying to encourage them to press on in spite of persecution. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, he says this, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for, what, rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. That's set for a moment. He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that baptism, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him? Right, it's just as clear as day, right? You get through that and you're like, what are we talking about again? I mean, it, it, is, it is a weighty passage. There's a lot of things that he's, he's pulling together. And, and as you study these things and you, and you look at the scriptures, one of the things you have to open yourself up to is the fact that this is not written in a vacuum. What we would like is to just dive into the word of God, pull something out and be able to hang it on the wall and live by it. That's what we want, right? Just, just let me pick something at random, throw it up on the wall, and then I'm going to live by that today. And that's not how the scripture is built. That's not the way that it works. The scriptures are given to us as something that we, we meditate on, we, we ponder, we, throughout our entire lives, learn more and more and more about. And try to understand and see how it all sits together and how it all unifies itself into one story. And it's the story of how God loves us enough that he sent his son to die for us. And so when Peter is addressing this congregation, he's not just bringing up one thing. He's not just talking about one simple thing. I mean, in that passage, we hear about Noah. We hear about Jesus Christ. We hear about their present sufferings. We're talking about baptism and angels in heaven. It's, it's confusing. Who are spirits in prison? What is he talking about? And for a long time, I would read this passage and just turn the page. Right? Oh, end of the chapter. Let's move on to the next one because that was a mess at the end. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. 
until you come to something like the Apostles' Creed, where our church fathers have handed down from generation to generation, these are, what, these are the statements that we as Christians believe. And it's like, okay, so Jesus descended into hell. Where do you get that? Because it's not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's not in Acts or Romans. It's not there. So where do you get this? And, and here is that first notion. And if you just read that one particular spirit here, it says, or excuse me, that one particular scripture, it says in verse 19, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So that's kind of the first place. And I just pause there. So that you can feel the weight of this. Like, what else would that mean? And there are some possible suggestions. And I'm going to get into that more later too. But that's the first place. In the very next chapter, which this was a letter that was written by Peter. And so it's just a few sentences later. This also comes up. In chapter 4 of 1 Peter, I started in verse 3. It says, For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. Though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So it's another one of those verses you come to and you're like, huh, what does that mean? And when you put it with the thing that he said a few verses back where it says he went and proclaimed to the spirits now in prison. And now he says, preached even to those who are dead. It, it just kind of makes you have to stop and think, what do what are we referring to here? And there's some mystery to it. Even still, as much as I've, I've dove into this and I've, I've had those conversations, I've talked to people, there is still some mystery to it. Let me give you one other verse of Scripture that kind of ties into this as well. And this is Ephesians chapter 4. So a different book, different author. We have Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says this to them. He's talking about gifting. He says, To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then some explainer. It says, Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. So I began to ask a lot of questions. All right, this is, this is not something where you can go to the verse and say, look, it says right here, Jesus descended into hell. I wish I could lay that before you. I wish I had that to stand on. But I don't. I, I have these kind of side statements, right? P 
Peter's talking to the church about persecution and enduring under trial. Paul is talking to the church at Ephesus about how Christ gave gifts to men as a result of him having won our freedom. He led host a captive, he, he led host, he led captive a host of captives, it said, and then he gave gifts to men. That's his point. That's what he's talking about. But then it has this little expression. What does it mean that he ascended except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? And let me tell you, even translators have a difficult time with these passages because they're using language that really doesn't show up the same way in other passages. This is difficult, meaty stuff in the scriptures. So if you're puzzled over it, if you're troubled over it, welcome to the club. It's good to be here. It's good to be challenged about what we really believe. It's good to let the scripture say something to us that we're not super comfortable with because then it opens us up for it to speak other things to us that we should be uncomfortable about. Where we've let sin into our life, where we've allowed false teaching to take root in our hearts. We need the scriptures to speak to us in a way that challenges us. And so I embrace these conversations. So one of the questions I ask is, okay, if in 1 Peter, where it says that he went and proclaimed to the spirits now in prison. I'm trying to pull that back up here on the screen. Verse 19 of 1 Peter 3, it says, in which he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Okay, the in which that it's talking about is in the spirit, because that's the end of the previous verse. So in the spirit, Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits now in prison. So one of the first questions that comes up is, what did he proclaim? In, in chapter um, 4, in verse 6, I believe it is, he says that the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. The gospel, good news. So, if Jesus died on the cross, and then, let's, let's just entertain this line of reasoning. If Jesus died on the cross, and then he went to where the spirits are in prison, where, where the dead might hear his proclamation, what would he be proclaiming? I think that the message that he would be proclaiming would be that the job has been done. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says this, When the perishable will have put on the imperishable, when this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If Christ had anything to proclaim to the spirits who are in prison, if Christ had anything to preach to those who had already died, it is the job's done. Death no longer has its victory. Death has not won because I paid the price on the cross, the deal is done. Victory is mine. And that would be good news to anyone who had put their faith in the Lord. But there are other questions, of course, that come up. 
and I don't have this as a, a series of questions that I can give you answers to, I would love to have conversation with people about this topic because it is a difficult thing to try to, try to muddle your way through. It, it sparks lots of questions for me. But let me tell you some things that I don't believe this means so as to clarify what I think that is really being said here. First of all, let me just say this as an aside. You will find commentary, even books written, where people land on different sides of this discussion. Where people take this, these verses that I've said and they say, well, when it says he traveled in the Spirit, he went in the Spirit, it was just that the Spirit who was with Noah when Noah was preaching was the Spirit of Christ. And so it wasn't that Jesus did that after he died. It's that he was with Noah even then. And I can see the, the argument. And it makes sense to me. And I can follow the logic through. But I'm not sure that that's exactly where I land. But there, there are other topics and other points that people make back and forth. And here's where I kind of come to on topics like this. is It's like, what does it mean about the practice of our faith? What does it affect in the way that I interpret other passages? Because the way that it works in the scriptures is you take unclear passages and you try to make sense of them and understand them in light of clearer passages. As best you can, you take the clear teaching of the word of God and you apply that to the unclear portions. You can't take unclear portions and then backtrack and make clearer portions mean something different than they clearly mean. And so this is one of those where it's an unclear portion, and I think that we're okay not knowing what it is. And if you want to know other ones, see me afterwards. I'll put you on a few other questionable things in the Bible. There are things that we just have that are just mysterious to us, and it's okay for it to be mysterious. So let's, let's get into this here. All right. So let's, let's just take this assumption that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he proclaimed to the spirits who were in prison. All right? Some people don't like to call that hell. And they think hell refers to the lake of fire at the end of all things that's mentioned in Revelation. If you, while we say the Lord's of the Apostles' Creed, if you want to say Hades... I'm not going to pay any attention to that, if that makes you feel more comfortable. If you want to say descended to the dead, you can say that while we say the other. That those kinds of things are not essential to me. If you want to just be quiet while we say that line, I have no problem with that. But let me get into this. I don't believe... That Jesus preaching to these lost souls, Jesus descending into hell, I don't believe that that was necessary for our salvation. In other words, it was not part of the formula by which God saved you and I. If Jesus descended into hell to preach to the saints that were in prison there, it is not to pay any more price than he already paid on the cross. In other words, the cross was sufficient and just one verse that I, I point to that says that is John 19, 30. It says, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished and gave up his spirit. 
Don't take my word for it. Don't take anyone else's word for it. Jesus said, it is finished. Right there on the cross. He didn't say, it's almost finished. I just got one more thing to do. He said, it's finished. And we know that when he gave up his spirit, the veil was torn from top to bottom. The earth shook. Graves were opened up. People came walking out of their graves and other people were like, thought you died. It was a a real event that happened. Jesus won the victory right then. So him descending into hell was not necessary for our salvation. You see, Jesus took our payment in full on the cross. He was not consigned to hell. He didn't deserve to go to hell and he didn't take hell in our place. He didn't need to. He took the full punishment of the wrath of God there on the cross for us. And that in and of itself was sufficient. So as we think about this, I have to be clear on that. The cross was sufficient. This was not to pay my penalty. All right, the second thing that I don't believe about it. I don't believe that Jesus descending to hell and preaching accounts for the time that he was in the grave. There are some people who say, well, yeah, that makes sense. Because what else did he do when he was in the grave? I don't think that that's the purpose of this. Because I don't think it would take Jesus very long to do a proclamation of death is won. Death is defeated. I've won the victory. There's a couple of verses I'll point to for this. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, same author as before, he says, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, time does not constrain our Lord the way that it constrains us. God is outside of our concept of time. I've been listening to Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and he has a, a wonderful discussion about this concept that you know, God does not, is not bound by time. He sees the end from the beginning, and he sees everything in between all at the same time. And God is more interested in timing than he is in time itself. C.S. Lewis kind of puts it this way, that if you were to... Draw a line on a page as you, the author of that line, that line cannot constrain you. You can get over to the other side and back again. You can move down the line and back up again. You can see the whole line because you're the maker of that line. And if time is a linear thing that we exist in, our maker is outside of it. So I don't think that Jesus needed that time in order to go and proclaim whatever he proclaimed. I think instead what that time represents when Jesus is buried, before Jesus rises again, is Jesus fulfilling the law. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. I believe that Jesus was fulfilling the law, specifically the law about the Sabbath. In Exodus 20, it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. 
In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And I think what Jesus is doing there, do do you think it's an accident that Jesus died the day before Sabbath? Absolutely not. As God culminated his creative process on the sixth day, I believe Jesus culminated his mission to rescue that creation on the sixth day. And on the seventh day, he rested. He only stayed in the grave that long because he wanted to take a full Sabbath rest as a a message to us, as a sign to us. The grave didn't have any power over him. He didn't need to wrestle against the grave For a whole day and a night. He just was there and then rested. And then when it was time to get up and go to work again, he got up and went to work. He came up out of that grave. I believe that what Jesus was doing in the tomb was he was obeying the commandments of the Lord. He was fulfilling the law. And he rested. For days upon days he had been working. And we see that he comes into the city on the first day of the week. He, he works in the temple. He preaches to crowds. He heals people. He teaches his disciples. He works and works and works. He is, he is tried unlawfully. He is sentenced to death. And he dies on the cross, accomplishing the work that God sent him to do. And then he rested. When you think about the timeline there, That's what all those marks on the board back there are about. The timeline is simply this. Jesus died about, you know, 3, 3.30. Sunset at 6 o'clock. There's a little window of time before the Sabbath starts. But 6 o'clock, Sabbath begins. And Sabbath goes all the way. This is Friday night. Sabbath goes all the way through Saturday until Saturday night. And then Saturday night happens, and on Sunday morning at daybreak, Jesus comes out of the grave. I remember coming to the point that I realized that it wasn't that he died, you know, three days. It wasn't 72 hours that Jesus was in the grave. And that's not what the scriptures say anyway. It doesn't say that it was three days later. He says, on the third day is what Jesus says. So he died on Friday, which is the first day. He rested on Saturday, which is the second, and he came up out of the grave on Sunday, the third day. And I think that that's what he was there doing, is he was just resting. So I don't believe that Jesus going and preaching in hell or Jesus having to suffer in hell would be a way of accounting for the time that he was in the grave. No, I think he was fulfilling the command of the Lord. The last thing I'll share with you is this. I don't believe that it offered a second chance to those who rejected faith. Some people take these passages of scripture and they develop an idea about purgatory. And I don't think that that's what this teaches us. And I can tell you why. And I want to be able to show you a whole lot more scripture than I have time for today. But let me just share with you a few things about why I don't believe that this was offering a second chance to those who rejected faith. Starting in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
There's no difficulty in translating that particular piece of scripture. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is an unpopular belief in our culture today. There are some who would try to label what I just read as hate speech in today's culture. But the simple fact is Jesus said in no uncertain terms, no one comes to the Father but through me. No one. There is no other way that by which men can be saved. There's no other name under heaven, it says, by which we must be saved. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. And so you think about that. Think about Abraham. Do you believe that Abraham's in heaven? I sure do. But Abraham lived before Jesus. If Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Jesus, but Jesus hadn't happened yet when Abraham was living, how is Abraham saved through Jesus? I'm glad you asked. Romans kind of gets into this. It says, but now apart from the law, the unrighteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift through, by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. Now listen to this. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How was Abraham saved? What paid for Abraham's sins? It was Jesus on the cross. All those sacrifices that Abraham performed back in his day, they were temporary at best. They were insufficient to cover his sins once and for all. It was Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross that saved Abraham. And what God did is he said, I, I see your faith. You're believing in a system of sacrifice for your sins. This is imperfect, but I'm going to pass over because I know what's coming. Because God existing outside of time knew exactly what Jesus was going to do on the cross. And so he saw the faith of Abraham and he said, I'm passing over until Jesus comes and your sins are paid for once for all. It says in Romans 4, 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And what do you know about credit? Eventually, it's got to be paid for, right? God credited righteousness to Abraham and then paid the price on the cross. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages... He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. 
So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. It is appointed man to die once, and after this comes the judgment. I believe that Abraham had his chance in his life, and because he chose faith in God over anything else, God credited that to him as righteousness. It is by faith alone that we're saved. And Abraham exercised that faith in God back then, even before Christ had come. And now we on the other side of Christ, we get to look back and say, yes, it has been paid in full. Not that it will be one day, but it's already been done. And I am saved because of what Christ has already accomplished on the cross. Those that are on the other side of the cross were looking forward to their salvation coming. And they put their faith in God saying, I can't save myself. These sacrifices I do, I know are temporary, but I'm putting my hope in the fact that you can save me because I cannot save myself. Either regard, it all hinges on Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can save us. It was his payment on the cross that settled it once for all. And so I I offer this idea. In light of this scripture and many others, I promise you, here's what I think happened. Now, this is the part where I I step away because it's not written there. All right? I've shared with you what is written there. And this is the part where I just say, this is what's on my heart. I think when Jesus died on that cross, there was still enough time before Sabbath began that he made a proclamation. It's finished. Death has lost. And I think that he proclaimed that faith that you had, Abraham, that faith that you had, David, that faith that you had, Gideon, name after name after name of the saints who had died before his sacrificial death. I believe the proclamation is, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's been defeated. I paid the penalty of death. I paid for your sins to be washed. And I believe that those saints are the captives that he led captive into heaven. I believe those are the ones that he released from the bonds of death. And that was his proclamation. Death no longer has victory. And then I think he rested. Now, I think that everyone who was in that spirit realm heard that proclamation. For some, it was to their own judgment because they had rejected faith in God. For others, it was their liberation. Now, there's some other theories out there. They talk about soul sleep. That's a a thing that's out there, and and people believe in that, and I, I, I understand, but I kind of have a different perspective on that. I think that when Abraham closed his eyes in sleep, when his... Death overtook him. He opened his eyes on the other side and Jesus was right there saying, I paid the price, it's done. Why? Because Jesus exists outside of time. And even though for us there's thousands of years in between for Jesus, it's right then. I don't think that Abraham had to wait in the bonds of death. I don't think he had any kind of punishment that he endured in death. I think that he opened his eyes present with the Lord To be absent from the body, Paul says, is to be present with the Lord. And so I think that 
this proclamation that Peter refers to that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits now in prison was the prison of death that was temporary because they had faith in God. They were waiting for the price to be paid and Jesus came and said, it's done. I paid the price, come into rest. And I think for those that experienced that, they experienced it instantly. Now again, that's... That's a statement that I'm making. Based on what I've learned about Scripture, based on what I've read from scholars who've gone before me, but it's, it's a personal belief. And I just encourage you to dive into difficult passages like that. When you come to them, sometimes it's easy just to say, that was weird. And move on. But let me encourage you that there are times where it's like, you know in the back of your mind, I need to go back. I need to take another look at what I just read. And don't be afraid of those passages. Reach out to people that you love and trust. People that you know are are walking this walk with you, people who maybe are a little bit further down the road than you or people that you know have spent a little more time studying things and ask them questions. I love getting these questions. Brother JP, what are the Nephilim? Oh, man. We could take some time looking at that together. There's lots of theories, right? Why did Jesus have to be born of a virgin? Oh man, I love talking about these kinds of questions. Dive into it with people. And be willing to hold it in a little bit of tension. I don't think it's meant for us to understand everything right now. I think there are things that we're supposed to hold in faith and hold in tension. What we know is this, Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty of sin once for all. And that that sacrifice on the cross was sufficient for all mankind, for all of history. From way before the cross and however long lets us tarry in the future. Christ's death on the cross paid the penalty once for all. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you even for difficult passages like these. Jesus, I thank you that you did pay that price once and for all. That there's no requirement that we have yet to meet. There's no requirement that we also have to fulfill. But Jesus, your payment was in full. And it was done on the cross. Jesus, I pray that we would be faithful to your word. That no matter how difficult of a a struggle it might be at times, Father, may we not shy away from the teachings of your word. Father, help us 
to find that that desire for your word. That we would want to know it more. That we would want to understand it more. That we would want to embrace it to its fullest context. And Father, I pray that it would challenge us and change us. Make us more into the image of your Son. To make us more like Christ. So that we can show this world the love and the compassion that he came to give. So that we can offer them the hope that we only find in you. Father, the world is full of ideas about how to make this place a better place. How to make things better for people. How to be more compassionate. Or how to be more, more giving. More selfless. Truly, we find all of those answers in your word. Help us to know it more. And help us to yield to its teaching. Not try to shape it into our own ideas. Not try to twist it so that it it makes us feel more comfortable or better about ourselves. But to take your word for what it is and let it shine its light into our life. May we yield to it so that we can be everything you've called us to be. God, I thank you for the people that you have brought together that make up this church family of good hope, family fellowship. Lord, I thank you for their desire to know you more and to study your word together. But I pray that we would be joined together as one, that we would have unity in the Spirit as we study your word together. Not for our own sakes, but for your glory, because you said by this, all men will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. May that grow within us and strengthen us for whatever lies ahead. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Got through it. I I like whenever I get to preach on the crucifixion because it's all there and it's laid out. And I can say, this is what it says. It's more difficult whenever we come to a passage where it's a little more mysterious. But I think it's healthy for us to dive into those difficult places. And let the scripture speak to us. Let me encourage you. Dive into the word of God. Search it out. Talk about it. We've had some really interesting conversations in our household lately. Just from topics that have come up here and there. And I love that. My kids getting to hear the word of God discussed at home. That makes a big difference. Let it be talked about at home. Send me your argument emails. Let's share in this together. You respond to the Lord as he leads you as we sing.